More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Brian Lynn. And I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students or postdocs each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Nima Asbajari, a second-year PhD student in the Department of Computer Science advised by Dr. Maud David in the Department of Microbiology. Welcome, Nima. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Woohoo! Welcome to the booth. <laughs> All right, Nima, you work on machine learning. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Always for me, a scary, a scary term to start with because I feel like it gets thrown around a lot: machine learning, artificial intelligence, AI, um, and I feel like I still don't know what they really mean. So break it, break it down for me and the listeners. <laughs> What is machine learning? What is AI and how are they different? Um, yeah, so like AI, you know, it's kind of like a buzzword nowadays. Uh, I think in the, in like, like um, mass media. But um, I guess the first thing I should say is like AI like uses machine learning, but not all machine learning is AI. Uh, but like an example of AI is something like, um, like these computer programs that can play like the game of Go. You can like the first thing you look up on Google, like <laughs> like Go AI agent is gonna be like DeepMind's AlphaGo system, which just has like uh, it's able to play this like really complex game in real time with against somebody else. Um, and this uses this uses machine learning, but like machine learning itself can be like a way to model uh, um, some data that you have and make predictions about that data. Yeah, and for uh, listeners who are unfamiliar with Go, it's maybe would feel a little bit similar to a checkers or a chess, um, but as far as the number of different outcomes that can happen um, is a way more complicated. So lots of different, more moves to think about and analyze than those simpler games. It's weird to think about chess as a simpler game, but <laughs> yeah, compared yeah. to go, it is, yeah. <laughs> I guess simpler in terms of the moves you can make. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not, not the strategies you can have. Um, Okay, and you, you're you not on the artificial intelligence side, you're on the machine learning side. And you um, use it to better understand biology, which is kind of interesting because machine learning, computers, they're 
not very biological yet we can they're a really powerful tool so tell us a little bit about um i guess the aspect or part of biology that you're trying to understand more about yeah so uh i guess like one like a good introduction to that is uh my advisor just uh she has like these problems that she works on and she kind of like drags me onto them and they become <laughs> my interest um but they're good i they're they're interesting problems that i don't know about uh, and what we're working on right now is actually like analyzing like metabolomic data, which is you have like a bunch of people and you measure these abundances of different like uh, molecules and metabolites in their systems. And um, an interesting question that we had was, well, I had was uh, my advisor mentioned like, oh, like you know, we use keg a lot, and I was like, what the heck is keg? Right, and it, like she told me, it's like this is its database. It has all this like biological information in it about like uh, genes, proteins, and metabolites. So I kind of dug into it, and I found that you can actually build, um, you can read this database in, and then um, like learn some stuff from it. But ultimately, what we wanted to do was try to analyze these metabolomic data sets, which are just um, from like clinical studies and that they had to have attached like a phenotype to it, like IBS, non-IBS, probiotic intake, non-probiotic intake. And we want to do a better job of just predicting those outcomes. Yeah. So trying to see, um, I guess in a data set to, to tease apart groups of say individuals that have IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and and individuals who do not based on the metabolites in their gut yeah. or in their body. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think that's kind of cool to be able to use this kind of, I guess, publicly available database of all this data. It's like you're not having to technically like go out and do all the trials and or you know collect that data yourself but you're using data in hand in order to enhance i guess our understanding um of some very complex biology yeah yeah so i guess the hypothesis that we had and something i was on the fence about for a while until like i had conversations with other more senior phd students in our, in our lab because of my lack of understanding in the bio was um trying to utilize all that information in these databases and kind of transferring that over to these clinical data sets. Um, just directly like modeling the clinical data sets doesn't always work that well. Uh, based on the data sets that we've worked with, you get really poor performance, like uh, not something you would want to use in an actual practical setting. Mm. And uh, the idea that we had was you know, how do we, you know, take information from this database and then learn something from it and transfer it or enrich our clinical data sets? And that's where kind of the idea of building this network or in the CS term would be a graph that kind of represents um, from the from the database, like different entities and connections between those entities. So like the graph that we made was was strictly um, molecules or metabolites connected by uh, common reactions that they have. So the way we did that was we went through the database and we just pulled each uh, compound out and we found common um, reactions between the compounds. And if those if there was a common reaction, then we connected them to. And that kind of resulted in this this graph of like 
just thousands of compounds that were just connected together. Yeah, and as far as this graph goes, I mean, there's when you say the word graph, that can, the first thing that comes to my mind is actually the horrible graphing paper used in high school. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that can mean a lot of different things. So, what does like what exactly does a graph look like? Yeah, so I think the best description I use because I have to actually describe this to biologists a lot, <laughs> and I think like when you kind of jump into like uh, the CS way of describing it, people kind of just glaze over and they're just like, I don't know what you're talking about. CS being computer science, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so when I describe a graph, I mean imagine like a social network, right? Like you you're on Facebook uh, and you have a bunch of friends and you're you're directly connected to them. You're on your friends list. So you have connections to those friends. Um, so the way to depict that as an image is like you yourself are like a little node and then you have a bunch of lines connecting to your friends. And then your friends also have friends and those people also have friends, et cetera, et cetera. So we did the same thing, but we did it with molecules. Mm. And those connections are defined purely on common re uh, reactions that they share. So it's just like this network and instead of friends and their social relationships, it's just compounds and their shared uh, reactions. And so are those um, shared uh, reactions between the um, metabolites or molecules, is that information that you take from the database? Like, is that something that is provided or something that you have to, through creating this network, have to figure out what is connected to what? Oh, that's provided. Yeah, that, that, I don't have to do that part. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which I guess for, yeah, uh, I, I, it's so interesting because you're, you're coming at these biological questions where you need to have like, yeah, foundational biological knowledge of like how these things relate to each other, but you're coming at it from a computer science perspective. So, um, I guess to sort of go off topic a little bit, how has that like almost transition been for you? Has that has that been hard to kind of onboard into the <sighs> biology world? Um, I think the best way I could describe it is when people ask me like, oh, what, what what's your PhD? And I say, oh, machine learning and computational biology. But when I say the biology part, I kind of cringe a little <laughs> bit because I get like, I'm not a biologist and there's so much biology I don't know. Like this... This uh, this quarter with my advisors, you know, she's making me take a biology, <laughs> and it has been the the biggest like struggle I've had in school since undergrad. There's like you realize how much you don't know. Mm. Um, but fortunately, when you have a good advisor and you have good lab mates, they're there to help you. And um, my advisor has been super helpful in explaining like, oh, this is what this means, that means, and then kind of helping me like guiding me on how I'm supposed to kind of think about the data that I'm working with. So it's it like informs my decisions a little bit better. Um, but it has been a, a struggle. Um, I didn't, my undergrad wasn't in biology. My, my master's wasn't in biology. So, <laughs> you know, it's just like you had to dive in and just make sense of it somehow. Yeah. Well, yeah and then uh, speaking of like all this data you're working with, it sounds like there's a lot of data, right? So it's like you go to keg, I don't know, you do a keg stand, you just are like, can't more data than you can drink, right? So how how would how do you deal with that much data? So yeah, actually, there's actually not that much data. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 it, and that sucks. I I was hoping that um, you know early on when I was uh, kind of building out the the graphs, like I would have a lot more data to work with. But 
on one side, you know, the clinical data sets, they're, you know, a couple hundred people that you're working mm -hmm. with, not too many. And usually that, that number even drops further because after you do some pre-processing and stuff like that. And then the graph, I remember, um, like, one aspect of, of doing, like, this type of network analysis that each of these nodes, these compounds, have, like, some type, some information that you're working with, like, in, in, the, in the machine learning world, we call them, like, features, right? And to get those features, you have to kind of query other databases, like PubChem, to kind of access, like, uh, what, like, information about these molecules. And if PubChem doesn't have that information, then you kind of just drop that molecule. Mm. So, uh, you know, you're working with a couple, uh, not a couple thousand, maybe like 4,000 compounds in the graph and then, you know, a couple hundred people in the clinical data set. So mm -hmm. you don't really have that. I don't have that much data to work with compared to like other people that work with genomic sequences where, you know, these databases of just millions and millions and millions of you know, protein sequences, DNA sequences are available. Um, so that lack of data also kind of comes into the, you know, modeling choices as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you initially talked about the, you know, genes and probiotics and all, all those things, I was, all I could see was this data set getting bigger and bigger, but um, it sounds like you're actually limited by what people have discovered. Is part of your project at all going to be working with people that are finding some of that data for you, or are you just working with what you have and some, kind of ignoring the rest? Um. So, okay, can you, like, repeat that question? Because, so yeah. finding, like, the data, like, the clinical the clinical data sets, like, the abundances? Yeah, we mentioned um, going into, like, going to a resource to find uh, a reaction or, or something, and that if you don't find it, that molecule gets dropped from your data. Yeah, yeah. Um, so is there any effort into, like, getting that information so you don't have to remove stuff from your... Project. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, that's actually, uh, I like that question because this is kind of jumping a little bit ahead of where my research is like kind of going. And um, in order to kind of build the graph out further to include more information, it kind of delves into the realm of like this heterogeneous um, network. So right now we have something like a homogeneous network. The, the, the data that you have is just molecules. Hmm. But one of the questions that we want to explore is like if you have a network that contains multiple other data types like molecules as well as protein sequences as well as DNA sequences from genes, everything you can get from the database, then potentially you can add other compounds in because there will be other types of relationships connected to other data types that you can incorporate. That's a whole challenge in itself, but definitely on the horizon of something we want to explore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something to look forward to or, or not, I guess, depending on how it yeah, goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I guess rewinding backwards from like what, what you hope to do, um, let's talk about what you have done, okay, <laughs> which yeah. is, um, I, th I um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the data set you were describing with like, you know, whatever, the maybe 4,000 um, compounds or molecules and the couple hundred um patients or individuals in the data set um, is the is the probiotic versus non-probiotic diet um, study right so so you've created your network and now you want to or you the next step was to then build the model to kind of try and find relationships that were not known between molecules or 
correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> okay, yeah. So this kind of dives into like the representation learning aspect, mm-hmm. um, like the I guess like the quote unquote deep learning, whatever people, AI, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the way that works is so like the the pipeline is like from a high level view is we want to take this network. You want to learn something about the molecules and the ones that they're connected to. And then the information that you learned, which are gonna be a bunch of uh, vectors embedding, you wanna use that to like enrich your abundance data set. And the way that's done with um, on the network, like learning on the network part is, is something with like graph neural networks, which essentially uh, what you do in this particular situation is you have this, this uh, knowledge graph and each of these nodes have some like information associated with it. So you pull out a few links, maybe 20% of the connections, and you learn these representations of the nodes. And in order to kind of see like how well you've learned the representation, you try to predict those missing links that you pulled out. Mm, those 20% that you removed. Yeah, so mm. to, to see like, am I learning something that is able to capture those connections well? So this and is kind of like getting back to the social network analog where Facebook constantly says, is this person your friend? And they're guessing connections that maybe aren't there, but they presume to be there based on the people you know. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly mm. what's going on. Um, yeah, so the idea is you want to learn like some type of representation of the molecule that can actually capture those those connections. That way, the model can say like, "Oh, like yeah, you're you are connected to these other molecules, right?" And um, by doing that you're able to kind of produce this uh, this representation of the molecules that not only represent the molecule itself, but the other molecules it's also connected to. And um, with that information, what we're doing is we're trying to use it to enrich the data that we have on the patients by just doing like a, some matrix math in order to kind of combine the two mm-hmm. and then seeing like if that resulting output from that matrix math is more separable, meaning like can we actually discriminate better between people that have IBS versus non-IBS or probiotic versus non-probiotic. And then again, just a little aside here for folks that haven't taken math since high school. Um, a matrix, you know, much like much like that, our favorite 1999 film, um, <laughs> is just full of columns of numbers. Right, and rows technically, and so your data is really represented as these columns and rows, but then inside of a math object that you can work with. Brought to you by ba- Brian Lynn, who is in the <laughs> mathematics department. Yeah. I'm actually not. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I, I couldn't pay for that, that math GRE, so I snuck in the IB instead. <laughs> right. um, well, Nima, how did it go? You're, you you built the network. I know you built the model. You ran the model. You did the. Sorry, I'm really oversimplifying here. But you know, you removed your twenty percent. I I'm assuming iteratively did it many times. I guess. Oh yeah, I ran it to the. I ran it way too many times. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I just to kind of validate, like I'm not doing anything dumb, which is usually how I go about anything I'm working on. But, um, yeah, it was interesting because we found that. It's, it's it's helping to some degree. 
we're still working on it so mm-hmm. maybe talk to me like in a few more years and i'll give, maybe give you a better answer <laughs> yeah come back on the show <laughs> yeah um but no it was interesting we, we found that it was actually doing it was actually helping uh with uh i guess discriminate between the, the different groups and it was a slight margin of improvement it wasn't like this drastic difference mm. but just that slight you know uh improvement kind of made my me as well my advisor mainly to push me to like go find some more data and like try mm. it on the other things to see like how does it generalize to other data sets or uh is what we're seeing just kind of like a fluke or mm. is it actually going to work on other things mm. uh which is led me on a path to a lot of data cleaning which is not <laughs> how i like to spend my time but i'm i'm optimistic because once the data cleaning is over, then I get to the more exciting stuff. Right? So, yeah, yeah, but that's a huge success. There yeah. was an improvement in in being able to distinguish between your groups, and um, yeah, data cleanup is is will be over at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so Keg doesn't spit out like a beautiful, perfect data set to use. I mean, no database usually does. No, um, I mean, based on my experience so far, is I've noticed that there's just no standard way of like these different databases or mm-hmm. different data sets for biological studies to be represented. So, um, yeah, I have to just sort of jump in and try to, you know, clean it, find uh, the like how they've labeled their data, how I'm able to merge it with mine, that's like all of that. And it's just like the other day I found out that I was using the totally wrong ID, which was, oh. which uh, resulted in a lot of headache. But um that's how you learn. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. It's good you find found it now rather than once the manuscript is published or whatever. Yeah, that would have been, that would have been horrible. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's talk about your your journey to OSU a little bit. You're um in your second year here as a PhD um student. Um and the way you got here was was a little bit of a journey. You for um you were in community college first years ago, and you were on sort of a very different path. Um, yeah. Tell the people what were you what were you training to do? Yeah, so I I went to community college because I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do, um, and I was for some odd reason I, I don't even remember why I was doing this. Maybe it was just because it was like a fad. I wanted to do electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And then I took a hardware class, and I was like, I don't want to do electrical engineering. <laughs> um, but that was like three years in, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was, I think, my last <laughs> year before I was transferring. And then my dad just kind of th- threw something at me. Not not literally, but he, he, <laughs> he gave me like this book. It was about cognitive science. And I was like, Is, isn't this just psychology? And any cognitive scientist, if you say like, isn't it just psychology will get mad at you? <laughs> um, I didn't know that because I wasn't a cognitive scientist yet, but I, I was reading and I realized like how interdisciplinary it was. Like it was uh, AI, neuroscience, everything. It's mm. like mixed in there. And um, I figured like, you know, like this is just, I'm interested. Why not kind of go on that path and see where it takes me? I transferred to UC San Diego into their cognitive science department. And I realized like, oh, uh, they have like a, a machine learning track within the cognitive science department. I thought that was an interesting term, like 
learning machines. Like I, I didn't know what it was. Mm. And uh, I took some coding, which made me minor in CS. And, you know, fortunately, there was like a good, you know, harmony between the two. And um, I realized I, I really didn't like school uh, in the middle of all that, just because I, I don't like taking tests and waking up early to go to class. <laughs> and it was just it wasn't I didn't like undergrad at all, but mm. it kind of made me realize I, I do want to do more machine learning stuff. And everyone told me, like, you know, grad school's not undergrad. So don't mm. compare the two. Uh, and, yeah, from there, I I decided you know, I'm going to do a computer science master's degree. And I went to University of Hawaii. And obviously living in Hawaii is, like, pretty nice. Uh, so <laughs> I got to spend, like, a year there before COVID happened. And then... I got exposed to like bioinformatics there and uh, that's kind of really caught my attention. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I talked to the professor who was, who was teaching the class at the time and he became my, my master's advisor and we, kept, we decided to like work on deep learning applications and interpretability for like genomic data sets. Mm. And just really struggled doing that type of research and you know, it was COVID and, you know, everything was kind of just shut down. And so, you know, kind of grinding through that was really hard. And somewhere in there, I decided to do a PhD. <laughs> um, no logical reason whatsoever, besides the fact that I still wanted to do research and R&D was just fun, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I I kind of stumbled upon OSU. Uh, that's why I tell most people. It's just, I did like, oh, OSU has an AI program and their CS department and I applied, I put a lot of effort into my application because uh, I saw there was like a lot of professors that were working here like on AI and biology or just computational biology. And yeah, two years or one year and a quarter later, just here I am on a radio show talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Can I, what, was there a reason for your dad throwing, not literally, the cognitive science book at you? Was he like, I think this is something Nima would like? Or was he just like, hey, <laughs> read something? <laughs> yeah, no, I I don't remember why. I think him and I had a conversation about, because um, I think at that time, like this was like 2012 when I entered community college. Mm. And around that time, I think there was like this, this AI boom was like kind of starting to happen. Mm. I could be wrong, so don't like hold that. <laughs> hold that, but uh, it was like kind of there was like some stuff going on, and my my dad knew I was kind of, you know, exploring that area, and he said, um, "Cognitive science kind of merges, you know, between like the, the human brain and AI. So why don't you just kind of look at that?" And he showed me like th this book, and yeah, that 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 basically what happened <laughs> yeah. and and I also like once you got to OSU I think um the way you also met your current advisor Maud um was at least very different to to what I'm used to in my department meeting advisors here it's like you apply to an advisor they say yes I'll take you on as a student and then you like apply to OSU <laughs> the school but for you it was like you you got into the program and then at some point the director of your of your department was like someone wants to meet you which i think is just the biggest compliment ever if a professor wants to meet you 
Yeah, I don't. So I don't know what exactly happened between the two of them. So I don't want to like blow it up. It's like, yeah, it's like I, somebody wanted to meet me. Um, I think I was just like in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I just remember I applied and I listed people I wanted to work with. And I was given a temporary advisor who then for s- somehow didn't have room to take me. Mm-hmm. So it's like this really odd situation. And um I realized like that per that that uh, professor he was just very busy and I di- I didn't want to try to jump into his lab and put more on his plate so I said okay I'm gonna try to look for somebody else so uh, the director of the AI program was originally said like oh you could jump into my lab which is very different it was like reinforcement learning or uh, very core AI mm. uh, research. Um, like algorithms to focus on like the chess playing agents and things like that. It wasn't, it was no application to biology in mm, there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which is more of what you wanted, like more, a more de- applied direction or. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely wanted to focus more on the bio side. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, he said like, yeah, sure. You can be in my lab. And then the next, I think within that week, he is when I received an email from him saying, Hey, there's Dr. David does want to meet you. I didn't know who Dr. David was. <laughs> and, <laughs> Uh, they sent me some information or I looked her up and I, I said, okay, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll meet her. And, um, which was great because I met her and it was a great conversation. I was like, I'm, I'm so happy. I ended up in the situation somehow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Then she became my, my permanent advisor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will say one of the really nice things about OSU is that the walls can be kind of low in between departments in that way. And it's easy to exist in multiple worlds for these cool projects yeah it it was odd because um the ai program i think was just starting so the list of affiliated faculty wasn't fully completed or perhaps like not as uh, filled out as it is as it is now Mm. so she wasn't even on that list i think they were still kind of figuring out like what people are interested in and you know, for me, for example, like, oh, if you're going to work with Dr. David, she should be on this list now. Mm. So it's like people are starting to branch out. I was like, okay, all these people should probably be on the affiliated faculty. Um, so, yeah, like, I mean, they, I think they purposely put it, the AI program in a way where it's that low uh, wall between departments is definitely, I think, uh, I'm like losing the, I don't know what the word is. Uh, intentional yeah it's like intentional Mm -hmm. like people do want like they want you to you know bring your knowledge Mm -hmm. to other departments Mm -hmm. right yeah 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 because as you were saying like besides the like fundamental or core like ai research into ai there there are so many applications for it that i don't even think we're like exploring yet or using i mean i can but think we of need like to know if a cat is in the picture <laughs> that's very important or the traffic uh, light yeah yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> a robot. first things first <laughs> <laughs> um on that catty note <laughs> um we're slowly uh reaching the end of our interview time but before um you go nima we have three traditions on the show um the first is uh, we ask you, what is the favorite thing about your research? Favorite thing? Um, it's going to sound odd because I think a lot of people would disagree with me or don't have the same look. It's just 
I like that coming into new things, being completely clueless. Um, before I started with my advisor, I didn't know anything about graph neural networks. I didn't know anything about keg. <laughs> I didn't know about any of that. And I didn't know, I don't know what the results are going to be when I try out this thing or spent like a week trying to set up a pipeline and the outputs could be garbage or it could be like a gold mine. And a part of that is like, it's, it's pretty exciting because you don't know where you're going to, what you're going to stumble upon next. Like, and I don't know, that's, I guess that's like the exciting part because it's just this feeling of like exploration and just knowledge discovery. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, I think probably most people that do research can relate to that idea that like sense of discovery and you know, for a moment you get to know something that or see something that other people have like never seen or known. Um it's pretty fun. Uh okay, and then our next tradition uh is for a piece of advice. Uh this can be advice to your past self, to your future self, to uh, anyone going to grad school. A piece of advice. Oh, man. Um, it could be advice for AI. <laughs> advice for AI. <laughs> future AI systems that might listen to this podcast. Exactly. Once they've um, taken over and are studying us the way we do animals. <laughs> um, I think I would say, you know, for people that are applying to grad schools, definitely spend time talking, really talking to the people that you want to work with. Mm. Um, not just looking at like what they work on and that's interesting to you and you just flat out decide to work with them. Um, the, the main reason I say that is because the dynamic I have between me and my advisor is very natural. The conversation is mm. very natural and that helps me relax and be able to kind of just, you know, throw ideas out there without feeling that the, thinking like, do I sound stupid? Mm. Is this like not a, not a good idea? Um, well, another situation that I've been in uh, with other professors during my master's, uh, I definitely felt more intimidated. Mm. And I should have like, maybe I shouldn't have worked with this person just because they did some cool stuff. Mm. Uh, it's more, sometimes I would think it's more important or maybe there's like a good balance that you should consider that make sure you can kind of connect with your advisor on like a human level and also be interested in what they're working on because that can definitely foster a better relationship with them and will be easier on your mind as you progress through your PhD. Yeah. That's excellent advice. Grad programs are long yeah. and they're hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you got to get along with with who you work for in order for that to be a in order for grad school to be a somewhat healthy uh, journey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great advice. Um, all right. And our final tradition is that you get to pick your outro song. So tell tell the listenership what you have chosen and why. Oh. Um, Do you remember what you chose? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was by the strokes. Uh -huh. You only live once. Yeah. Um, it just like a feel good song. I don't know. Like a friend of mine showed it to me. I... For some odd reason, I didn't really hear about the Strokes prior to her telling me about this, but no, it's I, it's just a feel good song. It's like a, it's a good song to listen to in the mornings on your commute. Or something oh, like nice. Yeah. Or I don't know before dinner or before. What are people doing now? I don't know. 
listening listening to our the, show. Oh, show. You're so this right. Is the perfect song. <laughs> <laughs> it's great for that. <laughs> All right, with that, thank you so much, Nima, for coming on the show. Um, and this is "You Only Live Once" by The Strokes. Enjoy, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.